order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Hannah Bardell. To number one, Mr Speaker. Yeah. The Prime Minister. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. Today marks the 69th anniversary of the NHS, and last week... Last week saw the 80th anniversary of the 999 service, and I know that members across the House will want to join me in paying tribute to the incredibly dedicated men and women who work tirelessly to save and improve lives day in and day out. Mr. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. And later this week I will attend a meeting of the G20, where I will discuss the global economy, counter-terrorism and sustainable development with my fellow leaders. Hannah Bardell. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Her face smashed with an iPad, her body beaten and forced to abort a baby girl. This is only some of the domestic abuse my constituent Lola Ilisami has faced by her estranged husband because she has refused the genital mutilation of her daughter. Lola is educated, has a mortgage and had a good job with RBS until the Home Office revoked her right to work. I have been writing to the Home Office since March and have got nowhere. So will the Prime Minister now intervene to stop this family being deported and this three-year-old girl being subject to female genital mutilation? Uh, I say to the Honourable Lady that um, the Home Secretary has obviously heard the case that she has, has set out here today. The issue of female genital mutilation is one on which I think we are all agreed across this whole House. It is an abhorrent, an abhorrent activity. It should not be taking place. Great efforts have been made over recent years, both in terms of strengthening the law on female genital mutilation, but also on getting information out about this issue and trying to support people in communities where there is a practice of of, uh, FGM. I think the message has to go out from this House today. We will not accept FGM in this country. James Morris. Thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. In the last last few days, Iraqi security forces, assisted by coalition airstrikes, have made significant progress in eradicating ISIL fighters from Mosul. This is a significant step forward in the military conflict against ISIL in Iraq. But would the Prime Minister agree with me that the UK and the United States in a broad international alliance needs to work with the Iraqi government to ensure reconstruction in places like Mosul, as well as working with the Iraqi government to make sure that it is sufficiently strong to withstand the poisonous ideology of ISIL as we seek to defeat it? Well, my honourable friend is absolutely right. Um, In order to keep the streets of Britain safe, we must continue to attack Daesh in Iraq and Syria. And the UK is playing its part as one of the 71 members of the coalition. Uh, The RAF has conducted over 1,400 strikes. There are over 500 British soldiers on the ground providing further assistance. But my honourable friend makes the very important point that it's not just about the military action that takes place, it's about how we ensure there is sustainable reconstruction and rebuilding afterwards. Um, Our troops have helped train over 55,000 Iraqi security force, force personnel. We're providing over £169.5 million in humanitarian aid and a further £30 million to help Iraq stabilise these liberated areas. And together, we must also work, not just in Iraq, but internationally, to ensure that the hateful ideology of extremism is not able to poison the minds of people. Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. 
Mr Speaker, can I start by wishing everyone a very happy Pride Month, and especially those taking part in the Pride March this Saturday and similar marches around the country. But we should also be aware that a survey taken by Pride in London found that half of LGBT people in London had experienced hate crime in the past 12 months. I join the Prime Minister in wishing the NHS a very happy birthday. I was hoping she was going to say a bit more about NHS staff and their pay during her birthday greetings. Because, Mr Speaker, after a week of flip-flopping and floundering, we thought we got some clarity from Downing Street at last. On Monday, the announcement was that the public sector pay cap at 1% remains, and a rare moment of agreement between number 10 and 11 was seen. But yesterday, we had news that firefighters are going to be offered 2% this year and 3% next year. So can the Prime Minister confirm whether the public sector pay cap will remain for all other public servants until 2020? First of all, may I join the right honourable gentleman in wishing everybody who's going to take part in the uh, in Pride London on Saturday an excellent day. I'm sure it will be a very good occasion, as it always has been. Uh, and can I also say that I and all members of this House value the work that is done, incredibly important work done by public sector workers, including yes, including those in the uh, in the National Health Service and others. And I understand why people feel strongly about the issue of their pay. But perhaps I can just set out. Perhaps I can just, for the, for the information of the House, Mr. Speaker. Perhaps I can just set out what the current position is. We have had three pay review bodies in the public sector reporting in March that covered doctors and dentists, uh, NHS staff including nurses and the armed forces, and the government accepted the recommendations in all three of those cases. The firefighters, the firefighters uh, award is not a matter that is determined by government, it is determined by the employers, and it is not subject to a pay review body. There are outstanding pay review body reports. Those cover teachers, prison officers, police officers and senior salaries, and the government will consider those reports very carefully and will respond to them. But while we do that, we will always recognise the need to ensure that we take those decisions against the need to live within our means. The, the right honourable gentleman and I both value public sector workers and our public services. The difference is, I know, we have to pay for them. Mr Speaker, the public sector pay cap causes real shortages in nursing and teaching and many other professions, as well as real hardship. I had a letter last week from the teacher called David. It's all right, he's a teacher, he's doing a good job, all right? And he says, he says, and I quote, I've been teaching for 10 years. I've seen my workload increase. I've seen more people leave the profession than start, and no form of pay increase in seven years. The only thing holding the education system together is the dedication to struggle on for their students and staff. And he says this dedication is starting to run out. So what we're doing by this pay cap, I say to the Prime Minister, is recklessly exploiting the goodwill of public servants like David. They need a pay rise. Minister. 
the Leader of the Opposition refers to the numbers of nurses and teachers that we have in the, uh, working in the public sector. Of course, we now have more nurses in our hospitals than we had in 2010. We have more teachers in our schools. But let me, let me remind the Right Honourable Gentleman of why it has been necessary for us to exercise restraint in public spending, including capping public sector pay. It's because, it's because we inherited the biggest deficit in our I've noticed earlier, Mr Mahmoud, that you seem to be in a, a very hyper condition today. Uh, I would recommend you take some sort of soothing medicament or go and lie down for a little while. You'll probably feel better at the end of it. Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, we have acted to bring that deficit down by a quarter and a half. It's now down by three quarters. At the same time, we've seen the economy grow and we've seen record levels of uh, people in employment. Our policy on public sector pay has always recognised that we need to balance the need to be fair to public sector workers, to protect, to protect jobs in the public sector and to be fair to those who pay for it. That is the balance we need to strike and we continue to assess that balance. We've had seven years of tax cuts for the richest and tax breaks for the biggest corporation. And last year, Mr. Speaker, last year, Mr. Speaker, there was a net loss of 1,700 nurses and midwives to the NHS. And in the first two months of this year alone, 3,264 have left the profession altogether. Not a great birthday present for the NHS, is it? Last week, the Chancellor said. We all value our public services and the people who provide them to us, and went on to laud his own economic record by saying that we had a fundamentally robust economy. Well, the Prime Minister found £1 billion to keep her own job. Why can't she find the same amount of money to keep nurses and teachers in their job, who, after all, serve all of us? Prime Minister! The Right Honourable Gentleman talks about the number of nurses. In fact, I think some of those figures he was talking about was the number of nurses who have, are registered in the United Kingdom. There are about 600,000 nurses registered in the United Kingdom. About half of them, 300,000, work in the NHS in England. And contrary to what he says, we have 13,000 more nurses working in the NHS today than compared to 2010. I understand, I understand uh, that it has been hard for people who have been working hard and making sacrifices over the years as we have been dealing with Labour's mismanagement of the economy. But let me, let me just, let me just, let me remind the Right Honourable Gentleman of what happens when you don't deal with the deficit. It's not a theoretical issue. Let's look at those countries that failed to deal with it. In Greece, where they haven't dealt with the deficit. Yes. What did, what did we see? What did we see with failure to deal with the deficit? 
spending on the health service cut by 36%. That doesn't help nurses or patients. I hope the Prime Minister is proud of her record of uh, controlling public sector pay to the extent that hard-working nurses have to access food banks in order to survive. the frozen wages of teaching assistants, paramedics and council workers. But, Mr Speaker, it's not just in the public sector. Across the, across the economy, wages are rising by 2.1 per cent, while inflation is nearly 3 per cent. Six million workers already earn less than the living wage. What does the Prime Minister think that tells us about seven years of a Conservative government and what it's done to the living standards of those people on whom we we all rely to get our public services, our health services delivered to us. Prime Minister. I'll tell the right honourable gentleman what's happened over the last seven years. We see record numbers of people in employment. Yeah. Nearly, nearly three million more people in work. We have seen the introduction of the national living wage, never done by Labour by a Conservative government and we've seen and we've seen four million people taken out of paying income tax altogether and a cut in income tax and a change in the personal allowance which is the equivalent of a thousand pounds a year to basic rate taxpayers including nurses. That's the record of good management of the economy. You only get it with the Conservatives. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister simply doesn't get it. The low There is, Mr Speaker. Uh, we've got plenty of time. I'm quite happy to run on for some considerable period of time. People who are making an excessive noise should try to calm themselves and perhaps just give a moment's thought to whether they would like to be viewed by their constituents shrieking their heads off. It's very down market. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, there is a low pay epidemic in this country and it has a terrible effect on young people. Those in their 20s will earn £12,500 a year less than the generation that went before them the first generation to be worse off than the last. They are less likely to be able to buy their own home, more likely to be saddled with debt, more likely to be in insecure, low-paid work. Except for more misery, what does the Prime Minister and her Government actually offer for the young people of this country? to echo those of my colleagues, what we offer young people is more jobs, more homes, an opportunity, an opportunity to own their own home. But let me, just, let, me, let me just tell the right honourable gentleman what isn't fair. It isn't fair to refuse to take tough decisions and to load debts on our children and grandchildren for the future. 
It isn't fair to bankrupt our economy because that leads to people losing their jobs and losing their homes. And it isn't fair to go out and tell people that they can have all the public spending they want without paying for it. Labour's way leads to fewer jobs, higher prices, uh, more taxes, and Labour's way means everyone pays the price of Labour. Mr Speaker, when Tories talk of tough choices, we know who suffers. It's the poorest and most vulnerable within our society. Young people, Mr Speaker, employed on zero-hours contracts are more likely to have worse mental and physical health. Students who have worked hard at university graduating with £57,000 worth of debt that will stay with them till they retire. Mr Speaker, let me spell it out to the Prime Minister. This is the only country in which wages have not recovered since the global financial crash. More people are using food banks. Four million children living in poverty. Record in-work poverty. Young people who see no prospect of owning their own home. And six million earning less than the living wage. Low pay, the low pay epidemic is a threat to our economic stability. So can she take some tough choices and instead of offering platitudes, offer some real help and real support for those in work, young people, who deserve better and deserve to be given more optimism rather than greater inequality. Prime Minister! We actually now see that the proportion of people in absolute poverty is at record lows. He asks for help for those who are low paid. I'll tell him the help that we've given, I'll reiterate, the help that we've given to people who are low paid. We introduced the mandatory national living wage, the lowest earner's fastest pay rise in 20 years. We have cut taxes, taken people out of paying income tax, cut taxes for those who are on basic rate taxpayers. We are doing what is important for this country, which is ensuring there are jobs and an economy providing those jobs for people, because the best route out of poverty is being in work. And I know, I know, I know that the Right Honourable Gentleman has taken to calling himself a government-in-waiting. Well, we all know what that means. Waiting to put up taxes, waiting to destroy jobs, waiting to bankrupt our country, we will never let it happen. Stand the House is excited about hearing the Right Honourable Member, Nikki Morgan. Mr Speaker, thank you very much indeed. I know that the Prime Minister and her ministers and many other members of this House are committed to better mental health care for everyone. Uh, I'm a founder of the Loughborough Wellbeing Project and I recently visited the CAMS Eating Disorder Service in Leicester. As a result of this Government's careful financial management, 1.4 billion more is going to be on mental health services. How can the Prime Minister ensure that that money is getting to frontline NHS services consistently? Prime Minister! First of all, commend my right honourable friend in the work that she's done in setting up the Loughborough Wellbeing Project. And I'm happy to join her in paying tribute 
to the work of the Eating Disorders Service in uh, Leicester. As she says, they do do incredibly important work, and we do, must do more to transform the mental health services that we provide for young people, but also mental health generally. That's why, as she says, we are putting more money into mental health, and it will reach our spending on mental health will reach a record 11.6 billion. Uh, uh, reached that last year. That funding, we do need to make sure it gets through to frontline services. One example of that is the work we're doing to ensure that teachers and staff in schools are trained to better identify and better deal with uh, mental health problems when uh, they're present with children. Uh, and I saw that when I visited Orchard School in Bristol last week. Excellent work being done, really improving the quality of services for young people with mental health. Ian Blackford. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. As we meet here today, the funeral is taking place in St. Peter's Church, Dundee, for the former leader of the Scottish National Party and Member of Parliament for Dundee East from 1974 to 1987. I'm sure the House would like to join with me and commemorate the life and contribution to politics of the late, dearly missed friend and colleague, Gordon Wilson. Mr. Speaker, the UK Government has not announced any measures to address rising inflation and slowing wage growth, which the IFS has described as dreadful. As workers face more than a decade of lost wage growth and endure the worst period for pay in 70 years, does the Prime Minister think she is looking out for the just about managing? Yeah, yeah. Prime Minister. Can I first of all say to the Honourable Gentleman, as I did last week, that I am sure all members of this House will wish to both offer our condolences to the friends and family and colleagues of the late Gordon Wilson, but also to recognise the role that he played in politics in the United Kingdom, including in this House. Uh, And uh, I say to the Honourable Gentleman, as I have said to the Leader of the Opposition, what what is important is that we ensure that we have an economy which is uh, increasing the number of jobs because the best route out of poverty is for people to be in work. That is what we are doing. We've seen nearly three million more jobs being created over, uh, uh, over recent years. That's important for people. We also help people for example, by cutting taxes. It's exactly what we've done for people who are lower paid. Introducing that national living wage. These are measures that are giving people real help. Ian Blackford. Of course, it's the forecast of a rise in in-work poverty that should concern us, in yeah. particular yeah. Yeah. the exactly. likely increase of young people in poverty over the lifetime of this Parliament. Mr Speaker, since the 2010 general election, the FTSE 100 has risen by 39.6%. Monetary policy, not least quantitative easing, has helped drive up financial assets while workers have paid the price for austerity. Workers will earn no more by 2021 than they did in 2008. Will the Prime Minister give workers a pay rise? Prime Minister! I would have thought that, particularly with his background, the Honourable Gentleman would have recognised the role that the monetary policy, including the quantitative easing, has uh, done in, uh, in, ensuring, in ensuring that we are able to see those jobs in the economy that are so important for people. Paul Scully! Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can my right honourable friend tell me what steps the Government is taking to drive value for money and efficiency in the aid budget? and so to ensure that taxpayers' money is used to promote global uh, peace and security in the national interest. 
Prime Minister. Can I say to my honourable friend that I'm proud that the government has committed to honouring our international commitments on aid. I think that is important for this country. This money is saving lives. It's building a more stable and prosperous world. That's firmly in our UK national interest. But of course, he's absolutely right. We need to make sure that the money we're spending is being spent uh, properly and efficiently. And my right honourable friend, the International Development Secretary, I can assure him, is uh, driving value for money and efficiency in the aid budget, focusing on greater transparency, boosting payment by results, and driving value for money from DFID suppliers as well. And of course, we did set up in 2011 an independent aid watchdog uh, together with stronger systems and controls in DFID. It's important that we're committed to this, uh, this money, but it's also important we make sure it is spent well. Alex Cunningham. Mr Speaker, my young constituent, Laurie-Anne Povey, paid £300 house reservation fee to Patterson's estate agent, which they won't refund after their landlord client withdrew from the contract because she refused to pay 12 months advance rent. She now faces paying another agent non-refundable fees of £650 to secure a different property. When will the Prime Minister act and put an end to these rip-off fees and stop these agents capitalising on young people and others? Minister. The, uh, the honourable gentleman uh, should look at the Queen's speech. We've made reference in the Queen's speech to what we're doing in this area. We recognise these uh, these issues. Well, he says he says when, but he will uh, uh, recognise in this House that we actually need to ensure that anything that we bring forward in legislative terms we get right. So it's actually going to work. But we recognise the problem. We're going to do something about it. Bill Wiggin. In 2008, I brought forward an amendment to the Animal Welfare Act that would have extended the sentences for cruelty to animals from weeks to years. Will my right honourable friend look and see what can be done to ensure that people who are deliberately, willfully cruel to animals are punished far more severely? Prime Minister. Well, I'm grateful to my honourable friend for raising this issue, and uh, uh, we all, I think, share high regard for animal welfare, the importance of having strict laws in place to ensure that we deal with properly people properly who are not looking after uh, animals. And uh, anyone who's cruel to an animal or doesn't provide for its welfare needs may be banned from owning animals, given an unlimited fine, or, as he says, sent to prison. And he's right that sentencing is an issue, and that's why DEFRA is in discussion with the Ministry of Discussion justice regularly in relation to the sentencing policy for offenders in relation to animal welfare. Jonathan Edwards. Mr Speaker, with the civil service reportedly having to explain in crayon to the cabinet that there is no have your cake and eat it Brexit option, will the Prime Minister come clean and admit she is prioritising her own absolutist red lines and not people's jobs and wages. Prime Minister. I'm afraid I have to say to the honourable gentleman uh, that he will have uh, others. Uh, he and others will have heard the answer before. There's no. What we want to do is negotiate the best possible deal for the United Kingdom that ensures we have a comprehensive free trade agreement, that we can continue to trade with our European partners, that we have that new deep and special partnership with the European Union, and that we ensure that we are growing our economy. But it's not just about our relationship with the European Union. It's about trade deals that we will do with uh, countries around the rest of the world, and it's about ensuring sound management from a Conservative government. This is Jerome Murray. Blue Harbour Commissioners have highlighted to me the valuable contribution that retired police sergeant and now special constable Russ Hall has made to maritime policing. Does my right honourable friend believe that joined up working with other agencies is essential and can make 
a positive contribution to beating crime in our small harbours and help protect our borders. Prime Minister! Can I join my honourable friend in uh, recognising the contribution that Special Constable Russ Hall has made in her constituency? And she makes a very important point. Indeed, when I was Home Secretary, I brought various agencies, police, border force and others together to look at this, just this issue of how we deal with uh, protecting our borders. And that joined up working can make a very real and positive contribution. And uh, as she will know, of course, what matters is not just how we do that, but ensuring that we're having an impact. And of course, as she will know, crime has fallen by a third since 2010 and has fallen to a record low. Khalid Mahmood. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and thank you for advising me about my blood pressure. When I, go to, <laughs> when I go to the hospital on Monday to see my consultant, I'm sure he'll be giving the same advice. My blood pressure rises because when I go and see those nurses in those hospitals who are overstretched, overworked, underpaid, and having to use food banks, that's why my blood pressure that's right. rises. Because that's right. when she pays lip service to them and doesn't look at the pay sector yeah. cap, uh, cap and reduces that, Will she now take a plea and not listen to my right honourable friend, the leader of the opposition, but listening to the plea of those nurses and do something about the pay sector cap? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I set out the position Prime in Minister. response to the leader of his uh, party and the leader of the opposition when he spoke earlier. And of course, uh, People may not realise that for nurses, there is, of course, the overall public sector pay increase, but also many nurses receive increments or progression pay on top of that. And for a, a, typical, a, typical, band five, a typical band five nurse will be receiving 3.8% over and above the 1%. A woman. Thank you, Mr Speaker. It is, it is a strong economy that powers this government's investment in the NHS. And it is a strong economy that is allowing this government to create 1,500 new medical school places and new medical schools. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that Lincolnshire's unique rurality and sparsity makes a compelling case for a new medical school in this great county? Prime Minister! makes a very important point, which is that we can only pay for our public services if we have that strong economy. That's absolutely the basis of it. And as he said, we're going to train 1,500 more doctors every year to ensure that the NHS has enough doctors to continue providing that safe, compassionate care uh, that we all want to see. Now, the DOH is currently looking at the question of how to uh, allocate these places and will publish their consultation response shortly. I know they are also looking at the possibility of new and aspiring medical schools bidding for these places. Uh, and I'm sure that, as my honourable friend has always been a champion for his constituents and his constituency, he will continue to make an excellent case for Lincolnshire. Helen Hayes. On Saturday, the Shadow Chancellor and I joined staff from Picture House Cinemas outside the Ritzy in Brixton, who are striking because their employer refuses to pay the London living wage and has outrageously sacked their trade union representatives. Will the Prime Minister join me in calling on Picture House Cinemas, who made a profit last year of more than £80 million, to pay their staff the London living wage and to reinstate their local reps immediately? Prime Minister! It's about a relationship between employers and their employees. And uh, what I say to her overall is the importance of government taking <coughs> the right decisions to ensure we can. Excuse me. <coughs> taking the right decisions to ensure we're growing the economy and providing those jobs for people in the first place. Andrew Bowie.
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And I would like to thank the Prime Minister for taking time during the general election to come up to Bankery and campaign in my constituency. Oh, think we did rather well. But, um, I would just like to ask if she agrees with me that it is utterly shameful that the Scottish Government have, for the second year in a row, had to go pleading to the European Commission for an extension to the farm payment deadline. If further yeah. proof were needed, that the SNP are failing rural Scotland. We're fascinated to hear the answer, but I, I should just say that, although I'm very interested to hear the answer, and we will, the Prime Minister's not responsible for the Scottish Government. The Prime Minister. Can I, can I first of all welcome my honourable friend to his place in this House? And I very, very much enjoyed my visit to Bankori during uh, the election campaign. But what he says is absolutely right, because time and again in this chamber, Mr Speaker, we hear the Scottish Nationalists demanding more powers for Scotland. Yet what do we see? They are failing to deliver for the Scottish people on the powers they already have. Yet again, Scottish schools are now outperformed in every category by schools in England, Northern Ireland, Estonia and Poland. Powers, in, powers are kept in Edinburgh rather than being devolved to local people, and as my honourable friend says, yet again we see farmers waiting months for their subsidy payments. The simple fact is that the SNP's policies are not in the best interests of the people of Scotland. Order, I'd say to the honourable gentleman member for Glasgow South, who persists in gesticulating in an extremely eccentric manner, that he seems a little discombobulated from the world that he inhabits. That's a very unhappy state of affairs. It can't long continue. Stephen Lloyd. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Southern Rail dispute has and is causing real damage to the economy of Eastbourne and the South East. My constituents have had a dreadful time with the shocking service provided or not provided for the last 18 months. This simply cannot go on. Will the Prime Minister enlighten me, my constituents, and the House why the Department of Transport? and the train operator will not meet with the unions at the same time in the same room together to negotiate a deal. Prime Minister. Honourable gentlemen, that I recognise the problems that have been experienced by passengers on Southern Rail. This is a matter that has been raised by a number of my colleagues in the House, including uh, my honourable friend, the member for uh, Lewis, who raised it last week. Uh, and uh, I'm very disappointed, as Left and RMT have called more industrial action. It's completely unnecessary. All it will do is cause more disruption and frustration for passengers. The recent independent Gibb report said the main cause of widespread disruption on Southern has been union action. So I would urge the unions to call off these strikes, work with the operators and deliver the services the passengers need. Alex Burkhart. Businesses across my constituency will be cock-a-hoop to hear that the... uh, uh, that their calls for better broadband are being answered by the Digital Infrastructure Investment Fund, which is going to unlock about a billion pounds uh, for full fibre service. This is going to help them create jobs, particularly in rural areas. Will the Prime Minister agree with me that this is exactly the sort of infrastructure spend we need to get our country Brexit ready? Yeah. Prime Minister. 
Honourable Friend makes a very important point, and the, uh, we're already a, a digital world leader, and we're committed to making sure that this country remains so. And we already see 93% of the UK accessing superfast broadband. We're on track to re reach 95% by the end of the year. But we do see, want, want to see more commercial investment in the gold standard connectivity full fibre provides, and that's why we've launched this digital infrastructure investment fund. And companies around the UK, including in Brentwood and Ongar, will be able to apply for match funding for projects which would see fibre delivered right to the doorstep. And yesterday we also announced 100% business rate relief for those businesses rolling out new fibre. This is important. We want to continue to be a world leader in the actions the government is in digital, the actions the government are taking and making sure we will be. Liz Savile Roberts. Marianne, police officer numbers in Wales have dropped by 10% since her party came to power. If policing were devolved, as it is of course in Northern Ireland and Scotland, Welsh forces would have extra funding worth £25 million at their disposal. This would more than replace those lost officers. What justification is there for refusing to devolve policing? Yeah. Yeah. Minister. Been around this uh, this discussion before, but can I just address the central issue of what the honourable lady is talking about, which is about police budgets and is about the uh, number of police officers. We are currently protecting police budgets. We've been doing that since 2015. Uh, that I believe is acknowledged across the uh, across the house, and uh, we're not just protecting those police budgets. We are ensuring that the police have the capabilities they need to deal with new types of crime, creating the national cyber crime unit, creating the national crime uh, agency. These are all important steps to ensure the police can do their job of cutting crime, and crime is at a record low. Scott Mann. Can I uh, thank the Prime Minister for introducing the Trade, Agriculture and Fisheries Brexit Bills in the Queen's speech? This will be welcomed right across the West Country. However, we are facing some significant challenges with our rural post office network at the moment, and the transition for some of the post office branches from community uh, uh, community branches to community village stores and community buildings. Some of those moves have been smooth and some of them haven't. Can I ask her to take a look at this and see if there's anything more that the government can do to help my constituents? Yeah. 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 My friend again raises an important point and it's right that we should recognise the role that is played in communities by rural post offices um, and rural post offices in places like Camelford and St Minver in his own constituency but in the constituencies of other honourable members as well. We've invested uh, £2 billion in the network uh, up to 2018. The number of post offices is actually at its most stable for decades, but he's absolutely right. Uh, I would urge the post office to help to make it as easy as possible for shops who want to take over postal services to be able to do so. Diana Johnson. Yeah. Mr. S Mr Speaker, 2,400 people have died as a result of the NHS contaminated blood scandal. More than Hillsborough and all the other disasters over the previous few decades put together. With the compelling evidence that the former uh, Right Honourable Member for Lee presented to Parliament on April the 25th of, criminal, uh, of a criminal cover-up of an industrial scale, will the Prime Minister now do the right thing and order a public inquiry for the whole of the United Kingdom? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Prime Minister. The Honourable Lady raises an important issue, and I know that the thoughts of members of the House will be with all of those who have been affected by this terrible tragedy in relation to contaminated blood. Um, serious allegations have been made, and I would say obviously information that has been brought forward to the House uh, will be looked at by Ministers of the Department of Health, but if any Honourable Member has any further information or evidence that they believe will be important, that should go to Ministers so that they can properly investigate it. We are providing more compensation than any previous government and committed £125 million of extra funding of those affected for the contaminated blood tragedy uh, last July. But the Department of Health will look at any new evidence that is brought forward. James Dudridge, Mr Speaker, rather, rather than celebrating the NHS, the party opposite rather shamelessly have tried to weaponise the NHS as a mere political campaigning tool. Will the Prime Minister assure me that services like the 999 service will be decided upon based on clinical decisions, not those of politicians that are trying to weaponise our public services? Prime Minister! My honourable friend is absolutely right. In relation to the services that are provided by the NHS, it is so important that decisions are taken on a clinical basis by those who understand the needs and uh, requirements of people and in different areas. And that's why uh, we have set up NHS England, which has a plan for developing services in the NHS over a five-year period. It's important that politicians allow clinicians uh, and others in the NHS to make the decisions they need to. Mamal Hotra. I will be thinking of my constituents Connie Yates and Chris Gard and Charlie at this incredibly difficult time. It's clear that if Charlie remains in the UK, there is no further treatment available and that life support will be switched off. There are differing views about the chances of the nucleoside bypass therapy that other children, albeit with less severe forms of Charlie's condition, have benefited from. I understand the chances of improvement for Charlie are low, uh, but the doctors would be able to say within three months whether Charlie is responding and whether that change is clinically beneficial. If there is any room for discretion within the court rulings for Great Ormond Street to allow Charlie to leave and to transfer his care to doctors at Columbia University, and he is sufficiently stable to receive treatment, would the Prime Minister do all she can to bring the appropriate people together to try and make this happen? Can I first of all say to the Honourable Lady that she is right to raise the concerns of her constituent in relation to this particular matter, and I'm sure the thoughts of all members of the House are with the family at, and Charlie at this exceptionally difficult time. It's an unimaginable position for anybody to be in, and I fully understand and appreciate that any parent in these circumstances will want to do everything possible to uh, and explore every option for their seriously ill child. But I also know that no doctor ever wants to be placed in the terrible position where they have to make such heartbreaking decisions. The Honourable Lady referred to the fact that we have that court process here. I'm confident that Great Ormond Street Hospital have and always will consider uh, any offers or new information that has come forward with consideration of the well-being of a desperately ill child. Anna Subri. Thank you very much, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, when the Prime Minister and I left our comprehensive schools to go to university, uh, we entered into a privileged elite. Can my right honourable friend confirm that as a result of tuition fees introduced by Labour, improved by the Coalition, yeah. there are now more young people from working class and poor backgrounds yeah. 
because some people say it's fewer. Are they right or are they wrong? Yeah. Prime Minister. I'm very happy to, uh, to join my honourable friend in relation to this issue, in recognising that uh, uh, she and I left comprehensive schools and went to universities uh, at a time when the number of people going to university was significantly lower than it is today. And I'm also uh, grateful to her for reminding the House that actually it was the Labour Party that said they would not introduce tuition fees, and then when they got into government, introduced tuition fees. But what we are seeing, what we're seeing under the current, what we're seeing under the current, what we're seeing under the current uh, under the current system is more young people than ever going to university and crucially to address the point she raised disadvantaged 18 year olds are 40% more likely to go to university now than they were in 2009 Speaker, the Prime Minister herself commissioned Bishop James Jones to report on the experience of the Hillsborough families. Given the painful evidence before us that parts of the state still don't know how to treat bereaved families or the survivors of catastrophe, will she now give me the date when she will publish Bishop Jones's report? Uh, I haven't yet myself seen Bishop Jones's full report. I'm not able to give her a date when I will publish it. But she raises a very important point. The reason why I asked Bishop uh, James Jones to undertake this work was precisely because I was concerned about the way in which the bereaved families at Hillsborough had been treated over far too many years. Uh, and obviously, we've seen the, the result of the Crown Prosecution uh, Service decisions last week. Um, that, but this is why we have committed in the uh, Queen's speech to introducing an independent, a public advocate who will be able to act on behalf of bereaved families in cases of public disaster, because I think it is important that they are able to have that support alongside them, because too many families just have to, uh, as we've seen in Hillsborough, uh, have to, over many years, fight to get justice. I want to ensure that they have help and support in doing that. Mr Robert Halfon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, given the government's record in freezing fuel duty, will she resist recent siren calls to raise fuel duty because they hurt the uh, lowest paid the most? And will she also do everything possible to make sure that when the international oil price falls, that this price is properly reflected at the yes, pumps yes, so yeah. that we can have a Britain that works for every motorist? Yeah. Prime Minister. Well, can, I, can I first of all commend my honourable friend who has been uh, championing this issue for all the years that he has been in the House? And the work that he has done as a great campaigner on this and indeed other issues has been recognised by the government in changes the government has made. As he knows, uh, I'm pleased that we have been able to, uh, to do what we've done in relation to holding down uh, the issue on fuel duty. I think he's trying to tempt me down a path which uh, I will not go down because, as he knows, decisions on these matters are taken at the time of fiscal events. Order.